Here, for this is the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and teaching of his word this morning. What we see in our passage this morning is a common human dilemma, as it is part of who we are. It's in all of us. It has been taught in our homes and by our society around us. And that is, we are to have pride. Now, there are two different kinds of pride. There is a sense that we are to have pride, that is, we are to be satisfied with the work of our hands that God has given us to do, and to recognize the dignity which God has given us as we were made in His image. But then there is a sinful pride. There is a pride that leads to self-exaltation. And it often fuels our desire for greatness. It is thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. It is found in believing that we deserve more than what God has given us. Uh, For the church, it could mean when we get a little ahead of ourselves, as we will see the disciples doing here. Pride is the chief killer of souls. It was pride and the desire to know more about what God had forbidden that drove Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pride drove Eve to covet, that is, to want something that was forbidden. To want something that wasn't hers to begin with. Pride tells us that we deserve more than what we already have. And notice, Eve didn't have the forbidden fruit. Pride is what is behind Christians believing that the church must be exalted now in this world and we ought to have a better life than we already do. Pride is our chief sin and pride is what was blinding the eyes and understanding of the disciples of Jesus. As they made their way from the region of the Mount of Transfiguration, they traveled slightly northeast toward Galilee again before heading south toward Jerusalem. He led them secretly, not wanting anyone to know so that he could spend time teaching his disciples. And for the second time, he announces how he is to suffer. He told them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. 
Now, what was their response? It's a similar response that many people have to the gospel even today. We don't want to face reality. We are often caught up in illusions and distractions. And as sinners, we are naturally self-reliant and too proud to confess our sins and our need of a Savior. We are always so distracted or preoccupied by our pride, and it leads us toward a path of destruction. So first, we will see that pride keeps us from a true knowledge of Christ and of spiritual things. And secondly, pride corrupts brotherly love in order to serve self. It is important to know all this before Jesus reveals what is the way of the kingdom. First, let us see their response to what Jesus just told them about his death and resurrection. It says, But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. There are two things going on within the disciples. There was a lack of understanding, and there was fear. Now, why did they lack understanding? Well, we must understand that he is speaking of a spiritual understanding, not just a lack of knowledge. He has already told them what was going to happen to him. Their lack of understanding stems from minds full of faulty ideas or teachings. And as their Messiah, he was correcting their ideas, their pride kept them from truly understanding the Messiah's mission. They believed that he would reign on earth soon and never thought that he would have to suffer and die. They thought that the Messiah would usher in an earthly kingdom the way Rome or Greece or even ancient Israel had done before. They couldn't imagine that Jesus had to die. In fact, that was his purpose. He is not only the glorious Son of Man, but he is also the suffering servant And he came to die. And one thing to notice is that there has been a a shift in this letter. Jesus had done many important things so far. He has healed the sick, given sight to the blind, made the deaf and mute hear and speak again, set the prisoners free from demonic powers, raised the dead. He has fed his people manna or bread from heaven. He has done all these miracles to reveal who he is. But now, there is a shift of focus to what is his most important task. He is to die. And on the third day, be raised again. He announces it a second time because it is central to his mission. And it is central to the Christian faith. It is something that every Christian must drive home to sinners. If you take away the death and resurrection of Christ out of Christianity, there is no more Christianity. It is something that we must drive home because his purpose was to live and die and on the third day be raised for sinners. And what drove the disciples to lack understanding was that they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to understand. They didn't want to ask 
because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the implications of Jesus' death. If my master is going to die, then what is going to happen to me as a disciple? If he is gone, who is going to protect me? Who is going to defend me? Notice the pride and self-centeredness behind this thought process. But like I said, this is how many of us respond to the gospel call. When we are confronted with the truth, we may ask, since Christ died and was raised for my sins, what does that mean for me? Does that mean that I can continue on with the same lifestyle, making the same choices that I've always made to serve myself? Well, no. For the disciples, it was a new life and a new calling. It is a calling to a life that is not devoted to serving self. Uh, Many of us lack understanding, not because we cannot uh, connect the dots, but because we don't want to understand. We don't want to understand the ins and outs of theology and the things of God revealed in the Bible, because if we do, that means we will be called to something other than what we have planned for ourselves. We will be called to repent and follow Jesus. We will be called to a greater responsibility. So we're even afraid to ask questions because we know we will have to do something with the knowledge that has been given to us. And pride keeps us from that knowledge. Pride blinds us. It keeps us from knowing our true spiritual need. It kept the disciples from the knowledge of their spiritual needs. They needed Christ to die for their sins. But they couldn't see that. They needed Christ to die once and for all. I don't know about you, but when I look at myself, I have no righteousness to present to God. I have nothing. In light of God's holiness, we should all come undone. Pride keeps us from the knowledge of who Christ is and what he has come to do for us. He has come to do what we can never do, and that is live a perfect life. He has come to do what we could not do for ourselves by dying on the cross and rising on the third day. And also, pride keeps us from the knowledge of what he calls us to do in light of what he has already done for us. So they came to Capernaum, to their headquarters at Peter's house, and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, he knew what they were discussing. Uh, uh, This is like being in school toward the end of the school year, approaching summer break. I don't know how many of you remember those years. Um, But the teacher is teaching, and your mind is somewhere else. Uh, You're looking out the windows, thinking of the beach, or uh, you're passing notes to your friends, making plans, then the teacher, knowing that you're distracted, catches you in your distraction and then calls you to respond to what he or she was teaching. And there's no response on your part. There's silence and you're a bit embarrassed. 
But imagine, on the flip side, the frustration on the part of the teacher. He was trying to teach them that he was to die and rise again. Nothing short of a miracle, by the way. Something they never witnessed. Something that has never happened in human history up until that point. And yet, their minds were somewhere else. Discussing more important matters. Maybe even more sophisticated matters like their status in the world. And their silence testified to the fact that they knew what he had been teaching. But they were distracting themselves with other thoughts and discussions. Yet they were caught by their teacher. But isn't that what we do with serious conversations? We try to avoid them altogether. Uh, But there will be a point that we must all face reality. There will be a point where we will all be confronted with the truth. And we will have to discuss it. And he not only knew what they were discussing, but he also knew that it wasn't a friendly discussion. It was a prideful discussion. And notice how pride can corrupt brotherly love. It says, on the way they had argued with one another, see, see how pride is already destroying their relationships? Pride is behind every argument that we have with others. And when pride enters the church, it will destroy the church. How many church splits have we known in the past that have been fueled with pride? And then later, when uh, we tell our history or our story, we self-justify ourselves with pride. Because pride has its focus on me and making sure that I am okay at the end of this. Making sure that I look good, that I look holy, that I look exalted, that I look justified when it is all said and done. It is when we desire to disregard others and make other people look bad so that we look good. You're probably asking yourself, I've been hearing you speak a lot about pride. But how do you know that the disciples were suffering from pride in this context? Well, notice what they were arguing about. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. If that's not pride, I don't know what is. Pride was behind their lack of understanding, their fear of asking Jesus about his mission, and their argument. I have a cousin who I spent a lot of time with prior to getting married. And uh, whenever he would do something like set up a date with a girl that was way above his pay grade, uh, we would ask him, how did that happen? How'd you do that? He would look at us with a straight face and say, because I'm the best. Now, we would burst out laughing because we knew he was joking, or at least we thought he was. But the disciples were not joking. These disciples, who were a group of fishermen, sinners, considered to be the lower of class, or of low esteem in society, were actually arguing about who was the greatest. 
while the Savior spoke about his rejection and death, they were arguing over status. That status is not going to mean anything at the cross. But this is nothing new for human beings. We have always sought greatness. No one wants to be a failure. And men have always sought to rule and reign over other people. We were always taught to have ambition and to exceed over other people and not to lose or come in last place, to excel in whatever field we work in, to compete and to win, to make it to the top of the corporate or societal ladders. The dilemma today for young people is that they are being taught in universities across the country to be impatient, to have victory now. We want justice now. We want our names written in history now. This is a common desire that every human shares. Every documentary of every person of significance focuses on their greatness, their ambition to achieve and make it to the top. That is why you have rulers throughout human history who have tagged on great to their names. Right? Alexander the Great, Alfred the Great, Leo the Great. Today we have a separate category for the greatest of all time, or the GOAT, right? We talk about who was the greatest musician of all time, or who was the greatest actor of all time, or who was the greatest football player of all time. You know my opinion on that one. We all have this desire of setting people apart in categories for the elite class of whatever it is we discuss. And we even have these discussions as Christians, don't we? We discuss who was the greatest preacher or the greatest theologian or the greatest evangelist, etc. But we must be careful because this desire for greatness can come in and destroy the church. It has destroyed many so-called successful megachurches over the years, having the big church mentality. Look at me, we're successful. We're so big, all churches should be like us. They should all do it the way we have done it. We can do no wrong because we have the numbers. And we have seen that fall apart time and time again. And the desire is to make my name known rather than Christ's name known. Now this is the great temptation of every preacher. We all desire to preach the greatest sermon. And not just for building up the saints, but also for building up our own name. To be remembered among the Hall of Fame of Preachers. As a pastor, I have a collection of books. right? Lots of books. In there, there are biographies. And I tend not to read them. Because there's this tendency in Christian biographies where uh, the person is so exalted that other Christians can never touch them. Now, it is a good thing to look to the past, to remember saints who have gone before us, to have inspiration and to be motivated to honor Christ in what we do. But there is also this human tendency to compare ourselves to others, not understanding that 
We are all at different places and have been given different gifts. And we will not all have the same results. This is a great temptation for Christians individually as well. And that is to be recognized and known. There is the constant danger of comparing ourselves to others because we want honor and attention. That is why when giving to the needy, praying, or fasting, Jesus warned us not to do these things to be seen by others or we will have no reward. But to do these things in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward us. Because there is that great temptation and that desire to be seen as great. It is one of the most dangerous desires. Now, there is nothing wrong with excelling and doing your best. Christians are called to do our best in whatever we are called to do. The issue is the motive. Is it so that God's name would be known or my name? would be known and I would be considered great. This is what the disciples were discussing. Who was the greatest disciple? And they allowed such a discussion to get between them in an argument. This is a warning for all of us as a church that when our minds are focused on the applause and the esteem of men, it will lead to strife. And division among us. The desire for worldly supremacy, like the greats of the world, will lead to a divided church. Look at what it has done to the church over the centuries, even in the Reformed Church over the centuries. You can't tell me we don't have our own separate categories for spiritual elites. Not that it's wrong in itself. And again, we are to look to history, to godly example. I'm always stressing you need to learn church history. And you need to read those who have gone before us. But we ought to be careful lest we start comparing ourselves to others so that we would be known today. Notice what it was doing to the disciples as their pride was causing divisions among them. It reminds me of a church in Corinth where they argued over which Christian they followed as if the body of Christ can be divided. So Paul asked them, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And they even argued over who had the greatest gift. But Paul would remind them that we are one body of Christ with many members, each member serving their purpose. So pride kept the disciples from a true knowledge of Christ and of spiritual things. And it kept them from living in love with one another. And notice what they needed. They needed to be humbled and listen to their master. That is what all of us need today. So what did Christ teach them to humble them? Jesus has been teaching them that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. It is the opposite of greatness. 
He has been turning their human expectations upside down in what it means to be significant in the eyes of God. So again, he sat down and called the 12 disciples to teach them. Now, this is the way that the rabbis taught in those days. They would sit on a chair or stool, and the students or disciples would sit on the floor around his feet to learn. And he said to them, similar to what he has said before, If you want to live, then die. If you want to gain life, then lose it. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He is calling them to share in his sufferings and to serve. But that is not the way that the world defines greatness, is it? The world sees greatness in the cutthroat and worldly conquerors doing whatever it takes to get what they work so hard to achieve. But here, Jesus lays out the true standard of greatness according to God. You want to be at the top? You want to be the greatest or the greatest disciple? If you really want to achieve, then become a servant of all people. The way of the kingdom is to serve others. And we are called to be the greatest servants we can be. Imagine if Alexander the Great was called Alexander the Servant or the Slave. It doesn't have much of an appeal, does it? It doesn't sound good rolling off the tongue. See, they wanted glory before the cross, before serving and suffering. Imagine if Jesus, the greatest servant of all time, if he didn't serve and he just came to conquer. Imagine that. What would that mean for us? We would be lost and condemned. So what he was telling his disciples was that the path to following him in this world is one of serving. It is one of servitude. That's not popular in our culture today, is it? And this is the last thing anyone wants to do. We would never think of suffering for or serving our enemies, would we? And this is why it is a heavenly calling. And notice how he illustrates what serving looks like when he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms with such love and care and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Uh, See, this illustration has been confused over the years to mean something else, right? The child here that he takes and puts in the midst of them represents the lowest status in the societal order. And the child lives under the authority of others. Children have no way of becoming the greatest. The child is helpless. And back then, the infant mortality rate was much higher than it is today. 
So they were considered unimportant and they didn't have status until they came of age. So to be a child is to forsake social status and to accept the lowest place in society. And in this child, he is illustrating one who comes in the name of Christ. So in other words, when you become a Christian, you take on the status of this child. So he calls all Christians to this place of insignificance. Ironically, in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke, the same word used for child can also be used for servant. So he says, whoever receives one such child or servant in my name receives me. The act of receiving is an act of serving, and it is not speaking of just receiving a house guest or showing hospitality, which we should not neglect to do. But it is welcoming and treating this child of low status and no significance as if they were royalty. It is to roll out the red carpet for a child of God. He is talking about how we treat one another as Christians. It is to show honor and respect when the world wouldn't or doesn't. It is to show that this child is truly significant because he comes in the name of the king. It is to treat fellow brothers and sisters as we would treat Christ. As Paul said of the Galatians, that they received him as Christ himself. It is to treat someone not by their status or how the world views them, but to treat them as they are Christ, because they are in Christ. So we should ask ourselves, how do we respond to so-called nobodies in the church? As Paul says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If that was on the disciples' minds, do you think they would have been arguing? See, pride doesn't allow us to receive or serve anyone. Now, Jesus goes on to teach that if you receive this child, you receive him. And if you receive him, you receive not him, but the one who sent him. Who is that? His father. Because in other words, he is saying he is the only way to the father. And if you don't receive one who comes in his name, you don't receive the father. Now, we got to ask the question, what does it mean to come in the name of Jesus? Well, it means to bring or to carry the teachings of Jesus. The teaching of who God the Father is, who Jesus is as the Son, what He has done for us, and how we are called to live as His servants, as servants of all. As John says in 2 John verse 9, Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And he also says back in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, Whoever is from God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That is the apostles 
teaching on Jesus. Not all who come in his name belong to God. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will boast and claim to prophesy in his name, cast out demons in his name, and do many mighty works in his name. They will argue over who is the greatest disciple. But he will tell them to depart from him. This is another way of saying that our status does not impress God. This is the biggest argument against papal infallibility. Our status does not impress God. Neither does the status of a bishop or the status of a priest or the status of a pastor or the status of a president. It does not impress God. When he separates the sheep from the goats, believers from professing believers who weren't believers, he said what separates them is how they treated and served this little child, this servant of Christ. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So he is saying we can't just be orthodox in speech. We must also be orthodox in practice. What would it look like if all churches were stripped of our pride? And we all became servants. What would it look like if we spent our time in giving rather than receiving? Because notice by this we are building bridges for those who need to hear the gospel of the Savior. What would it be like if we spent our time restoring the outcasts to a place in society? Lifting up the downcasts by the word of Christ and gathering needy children to care for. What it means to serve is to give up our own time, energy, and resources to help when we see a need. It could mean to visit someone who is sick. It could mean teaching in the church when you're able. It could mean spending time with your family and serving them. A friend of mine said to me, we know that we are sinners when we ask ourselves, when have I truly sought someone else's happiness at the expense of my own? Now that latter part is the harder part, right? It is the more difficult part. Because it's easy to serve someone when it makes you happy. But what about when you serve someone When it doesn't make you happy. When we deem it as inconvenient. Also something to consider is that when Christ said. If anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all. He was also speaking of himself. This is what he had come to accomplish. As the son of man came not to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom For many, the king of all kings and lord of all lords became a man to become last of all and servant of all. He came to die for those who did not deserve it. 
He became last of all to be first to be raised from the dead. See, the disciples in their arguing over status were not, they were not only prideful, but they were also getting a little ahead of themselves. They were getting ahead of themselves because it is true that Christ has provided a way toward greatness. He has. What greater status do you want than to be called a child of God? What greater status in the world is there than to be a child of the King? And what greater place is there to be than in heaven with God? There, the greatest men that we know in this world will be no more, and we will be in paradise. But what he is telling his disciples is not yet. Not yet. You're not there yet. Until then, as Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We must ask ourselves, do we have this mind? And if we don't, let us continually pray and seek this mind that is already ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.